Good morning, everyone. I'm thankful to be here with you, to worship with you. Thankful to have an opportunity today to share a little bit of God's Word with you. I hope that you'll find it helpful and encouraging, and hopefully that the Word of God will be proclaimed and that will glorify Him, and that we can all learn together to be better servants of Christ uh, when our time is over today. I'm going to go ahead and start our slides. The title of the study this morning may seem a little odd, but we're going to talk about the church of the living dead. And if you want to turn your New Testament to Revelation chapter 3, that's where we're going to begin. It's going to serve as the core of our text for the morning. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So what's going on in this passage, first off, is that Jesus is speaking to John on the island of Patmos. And he's going to give them the, the revelation. And the first part of this revelation is going to be seven micro-epistles, or small letters, to the churches of Asia Minor, or what as we know now as modern-day Turkey. And so he has a, a custom-crafted, specific, targeted message for each of these churches. And what I want to look at today is the message that he gave to the church at Sardis. He had some specific words to them. And while we recognize that the words that Jesus spoke were specifically to those Christians at that time in history for the challenges they were about to face, what we can take is there are principles that Jesus revealed to them that will apply to us too. We have no problem going to the book of Ephesians or the book of Corinthians and saying we know that those were letters for a certain church a certain time and we make application of those principles to our lives today, we're going to do the same thing to the letter from Jesus Christ by the hand of John to the church at Sardis. Let's read this passage is just a moment. Jesus spoke and he said, and to the angel or the messenger of the church at Sardis, write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Remember therefore how you've received and heard and hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. The message here, and the part that kind of caught my attention, is here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 at the end, where he said that they had a name, that they were alive, but they were actually dead. What that made me think of is our, our secular culture has this morbid fascination with things that are kind of dead and kind of alive. You've probably seen that there's kind of been an uptick in movies and comic books and, and television shows about these creatures, these imaginary, okay kids, imaginary monsters that used to be alive, but then they died, but they kind of came halfway back. And so they've got characteristics of things that are dead and they've got characteristics of things that are alive. And we know that usually in these imaginary stories, these undead creatures use their semblance of life to hide the fact that they're really dead, and they use that to prey upon the living. 
scary stuff. <laughs> okay. Now, thank goodness that's not real. But you know what's scarier than those kind of creatures? is the fact that Jesus taught us about a church that was an undead church, a church of living death. Why is that so dangerous? Well, let's look at those reasons for just a moment. You know, a dead church, it might have the preaching of the gospel. And it might get people to come into it, and it might introduce people to Jesus Christ. But a dead church might teach some correct doctrine, but a dead church doesn't obey the whole counsel of God's will. It leaves things out. It adds things to. A dead church doesn't provide a safe environment for Christians to become disciples of our Lord and learn how to imitate Him and love one another. Dead churches don't do that. Dead churches don't grow and thrive in accordance with the Word of God. And so the danger is that while these dead churches, they look alive, they look just alive enough to fool people. And people put their trust in dead churches, and they come to that church for the gospel and for a place to grow and learn in Christ, but they won't get that in a dead church. And so the church has a semblance of being alive but is really dead and can't offer what a living church offers. And so whether they intend to or not, they actually feed upon those who would come to Christ and live. And because of that, a dead church is a dangerous church. The admonition from Jesus to the church at Sardis is to make sure that they were alive so that they could do what a living church ought to do. And so because of that, they're dangerous. And we need to take stock this morning, brothers and sisters, to make sure that we individually are not living dead. We need to make sure that we are alive in Christ so that we can make a church together as a family that is alive and not dead. In the study this morning, we're going to examine Jesus' warning to the dead church. We're going to learn how to discern what makes a church dead, and we're going to learn how to understand whether our church is dead or alive. And if we find out that we've got some deadness, how to repair and cure that deadness, and then we can thrive in according to the will of Christ. That's what we're going to do this morning. So this morning, what I want to focus on first is this warning about the works. Jesus said, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. Something that the church at Sardis, something that these people, and the people at Ephesus, we call them Ephesians, the people at Corinth, we call them Corinthians, but I'm not going to call these people sardines this morning. The people at the church at Sardis, we'll say, had some works. And what Jesus could learn about these works was their state of life or not. What do the works mean? The Greek word that's translated here into works means business, employment, occupation, the product or outcome of one's personal efforts, their deeds, their labor. In short, it's what you do or have done. Jesus said, I know what you do. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the experience when you're in your room as a kid and mom comes to the door with her hands on her hips and she says, I know what you've been up to. Now, sometimes, if you've been doing what she and dad expect, that's probably good. And you can say, well, good, then you'll be proud. (laughs) But what was normally the case for me was when mom came into my room and said, I know what you've been up to. I knew I was fixing to get it. Sometimes at work, we'll have a performance evaluation, right, where you sit across the desk from the boss and you look at what you've been doing and they give you a score 
and that might determine whether you get a raise or have a job the next day. People say, I know what you've been up to. Now, if you've been doing good work, then you say, okay, then this is a good time to ask for a raise. But sometimes if we know that our work hasn't been to quality, maybe we fear a little bit. Jesus approached the church at Sardis and the first thing he said is, I know your works. I know what you've been up to. And the works that I see, church, is that you have a reputation from people on the outside that they think you're alive and well, but I know the truth. And based on your works, you are not. He said your works are not perfect. He describes that. Your works are not perfect. He commanded them to strengthen the things that remain and are ready to die because he hasn't found their works perfect. We'll talk about what that means just in a second. But how would you feel if Jesus came and he wrote a letter to this church and it was with your address on it, your name on it, said, I know what you've been up to. How did you feel about that? We need to take stock of our own works this morning because there's a case here with the church at Sardis where there was the reputation versus the reality. And the reality was not good for them. It reminded me of a passage in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, where Jesus, the same Jesus that spoke in Matthew 23, is the same Jesus who spoke in Revelation 3. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus was condemning the Pharisees because they put on a show and they had tricked people on the outside into thinking they were in good shape, but they weren't. And Jesus calls this hypocrisy. They weren't critical enough for their self. Hypocrisy, so it's, they weren't critical enough. Their level of self-criticism was too low. Hypocrisy. And so they hadn't taken stock of their own works. Instead, they wanted to trick people into thinking they were good. And we need to make sure that as a church that we aren't full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And you know, there are a lot of whitewashed churches today. There are a lot of churches that appear great on the outside, but once you get to know the members and what they do, you start to find out what the truth really is. And how can you tell? Can you tell by the building? You know, this is a beautiful facility that you guys hear. What a blessing it is and the good that you can do with it. The location is good. And I've seen a lot of great-looking church buildings, but is a church building the outward appearance, the way that you can tell if a church is alive or dead? You know, any church with enough money can build a nice building. We've seen that. That's no way to tell. What about the preaching? You know, any church can recruit, hire, train from inside the best kind of teachers and get the best kind of preaching you could want. But did you know that the preaching of a church isn't necessarily an indicator of its liveness or deadness? Because all the best preaching in the world that you could get up here on this stage can be ignored by you, and it wouldn't do you any good. You can't tell by a church's preaching. What about the singing? You know, we had great singing here this morning. But you know, there's good music in a lot of churches this morning, but that doesn't mean that they're alive or dead. I've been to churches where the singing pleased me, but maybe there was something dead about that church. And I've been to little churches 
who the singing wouldn't have won any human awards, but I know the Lord was pleased with that singing, and they were alive as you could be, even though the singing, maybe from a human perspective, wasn't great. Singing is no way to tell. What about the number of members? People will say, well, there's a big church. They've got a lot of members, maybe. That must mean that they're alive. But you know what? There are a lot of error-filled, dead churches this morning in this town that have a lot of people going there, but they're dead. How do you know? Well, Jesus said it was the works. If you really want to know if a church is alive or dead, you've got to understand what the people in the church do. Sardis' works were incomplete. When Jesus said that their works were not perfect, it doesn't mean that they, that they didn't have a spotless record because no church has a spotless record, you guys. What he meant when they said that they were not perfect, it means that they were incomplete. They hadn't gone all the way. They were immature. So we as a church need to make sure that our works are mature and complete, meaning we're fulfilling the scope and the, will, the full counsel of God, what he's commanded us to do. Because none of our works and our collective works, therefore, cannot be perfect. So what makes a church dead? What kind of works would indicate that? Well, let's look at a chart for just a moment. Dead church versus living church. What I could do is I could take what Jesus said about one and the other, and then I could make a few assumptions. And the white asterisks here are my assumptions based on what I can understand from the Scripture. Jesus said that the church needed to be watchful because they were not being watchful for his return. He said that their works were not complete. He commanded them to firm up their works so that they would be. He said that they needed to hold fast to the doctrine they'd received and repent of their sin. The converse of that is that they hadn't. That's the assumption. They had defiled their garments, some of them, and some of them had walked in white garments for they were worthy. Some of them were not worthy. Some of them, Jesus said, would overcome and had overcome, which means that some had succumbed to sin. Jesus said that if you do these things, that I will not blot your name out of the book of life. The assumption is that some of the people at Church of Sardis would have their names blotted out of the book of life. And that those people Christ would confess before his Father. The converse of that is that those who deny him, or those whose names would be blotted out, would be deniers of Christ. And that's a pretty serious charge, to be a denier of Christ. You know, we can learn in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father, which is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Now, most of us in our right mind would say, I would never deny Christ. I would never say to another person in sincerity that I would deny the Lord who died for me. To me, that's just a step too far, right? None of us would overtly do that because we know that that would be insane. But you know, most of us probably have denied Christ. How? Well, Titus talks about a certain kind of person in Titus chapter 1. Excuse me, Paul talks to Titus about a certain kind of person in Titus 1.16. And he warns Titus about these people. They were, they were hypocrites. And he said, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Let me give you an example. One time we were on our way from Amarillo to somewhere in Oklahoma. I can't remember where, but we were, had stopped in this really great gas station called Hutch's in Elk City, Oklahoma. If you have to stop in Elk City, Hutch's is the place, guys. 
So we had filled up with fuel. We were trying to fill up with fuel. And a couple of lanes over in the, the fueling area, I see these two ladies start to argue. And it was escalating fast. I thought there was fixing to be fist swinging and hair pulling. But these two ladies were screaming at each other at the top of their lungs. I thought two sailors had got into a fight from the language they were using. It was awful. And I was trying to see, do I need to call somebody? Do I need to duck for cover maybe? But I got a look at one of the ladies. And you know what she was wearing? She was wearing a t-shirt from her church. And on the back of that church was probably some Bible verse and a picture of a dove and all this other stuff. You know, I love my church. Jesus is awesome, whatever. All this stuff on the back of her shirt, on her shirt. I was like, you picked a great shirt to wear on the day you were going to get into a knockdown drag out with someone over a fuel pump, okay? And you know, it's kind of an example, and that's pretty extreme, but it happened. And sometimes we may go through life and we may post Bible verses on our Facebook page. We may get the little silver fish on our car bumper, And we may say, I'm a member of the church of Christ, or I love Jesus, I'm his disciple. But at the same time we make this profession about ourselves, our works may deny him. When we choose to lose our temper, when we choose to bear the work of the flesh instead of the fruit of the Spirit, when we choose to be a bad example of charity, whenever we choose to use foul language in front of other people, whenever we choose to be backbiting, and malicious to others. Whenever we choose to sin openly, whether it be by sexual immorality or drunkenness or whatever it might be, whenever we do those things, remember our deeds are what count here, while we're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, we may profess God, but in our works, we deny him. And Jesus said that's kind of a big deal. Let's not be the kind of people who have works that say we're dead while trying to maintain a reputation for being alive. Now, Jesus said to the church at Sardis that you need to wake up and repent. And if you don't, I will come upon you like a thief and you won't know when I'm coming. And this is a mirror of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 42. He said, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. You know, if I told you that I knew for certain that a thief was going to kick your front door in at 3 a.m. tomorrow, you would be ready, wouldn't you? You would call the police at 2.45 and say, you need to be here in 15 minutes or I'm going to do your job for you. You'd be ready. Jesus said the same is true. If you knew a thief was coming, you'd be prepared. Verse 44, Therefore also you be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is that faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give you them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all his goods. The command here by Jesus is to be ready. The emphasis here is that when he comes, we shall be found doing what Christ commands. When that review comes, whenever we sit across the table from the boss, as it were, and he says, I know what you've been up to. What kind of works have we been doing? Have we been doing works that say that I'm preparing for your coming, Lord, because I have faith in your return and I want to be ready when you get here? Or is it the other kind of works? What does that look like? In this same parable, Jesus said in verse 48, But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master delays his coming, 
And he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. So the master of that servant will come in a day that he's not looking for him and at an hour he is not aware of. And he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There's that word again. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, whenever we don't remember that our Lord will surely return and he'll do it at a time that we're not anticipating, it'll change our behavior. The Bible says it creates an evil servant. And an evil servant says, I've got time to do what I want to be my own boss and clean things up before the boss comes home. It's kind of like when you were a kid and mom says, I'm going to the store and I, by the time I get back, I want the living room picked up. And you're like, mom's typically gone for an hour at least. But what you didn't know is that she only needed one thing from the store. And she needed one thing from you, which was to clean up the living room. And so you go and play video games or do whatever you want for all this time. And then you hear she's pulling up in the driveway. And you're like, oh no, she's, she's back already? She's coming? And you hear her pull up, she hear her stop. You hear the door close and you and your brothers or sisters are scrambling to get everything done that you should have done a long time ago. Right when she left, so you knew you'd be ready when she got back. Because the truth is, we never know when mom is getting back. And we never know when the Lord is coming back. And our actions will reflect our attitude toward that. He said that the evil servant starts to abuse the other people in the family to abuse the other servants. People who abuse other people in the body of Christ, people who abuse other people in this world, they don't think that the Lord's coming back. They're not aware of His judgment. Let's think about the judgment that's sure to come whenever we think about how we're going to treat the people in this room and what really matters in our lives. It's not typically the stuff we fight about, y'all. He said that this person also starts to eat and drink with the drunkards, to live a lifestyle of fleshliness and excess. And in our lives, if we think that we can have both ways that we can enjoy everything this life will offer to us and live fleshly and have fleshly friends and engage ourselves with their activities and be a servant of Christ and be ready for his return, we are kidding ourselves. It's interesting that Jesus said for these people when he comes back, what he'll do is these people who wanted to live a double life, he will cut them in two and give them a place with the hypocrites. He says that the place of the hypocrites will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The implication is they will go to hell. When the Lord comes back, I would hate for him to call me a hypocrite. Do our works really matter that much? You know, James cautioned the churches about their works in James chapter 2, verse 14. He said, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have work? Can faith save him? That's a rhetorical question. He's going to give us the answer here in a moment. Verse 15. He gives us an example about the importance of the things that we do versus the things that we think and believe. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needful for the body, what does it profit? He says, If you see someone that has a need, in other words, you know what the Lord has commanded concerning a thing and you look and you acknowledge I wish that you had something to eat and something to wear but I'm going to wish you well and send you on your way instead of doing what the Lord has commanded which is to meet the need and send them on their way what good is that to the person who needs help it's, n it's not good at all and then he says thus also verse 17 faith by itself if it doesn't have works is dead 
But someone said, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. A dead faith is a faith that doesn't do. A dead faith is a faith that is content to have lofty ideas and superior knowledge. A dead faith is one that's full of pride instead of humility and love and work. Dead faith doesn't do. So the answer is that no, faith by itself does not save. Because faith by itself doesn't transform our lives. A person's profession of faith doesn't make them a good Christian, but what they do to serve Christ does. Continuing in verse 19, James said, You believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? A faith that we have, recognizing the person of God, recognizing the coming judgment of God, and doing nothing about it, is a devil's faith. If we understand that God's going to come back and we're not going to do anything about it, we might as well be a devil. It's a dead faith. James gives us, he says in verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so the faith without works is dead also. You know, all of us this morning, we've got a body, and inside of our body is a spirit from God that gives us life so we can live and move and do what we need to. It's our connection to this world. And if for just a moment you saw that my spirit left this body, I would be dead. So here's some easy math. The body plus a spirit equals a person who's alive. We get that. A body minus a spirit equals a person who's dead. We get that. We've seen that. And then James gives the exact, a, a, an example here that faith with works attached to it is alive. But then he says that faith minus works is a dead faith. The way to tell if a church is dead is if a church's faith is dead, if its members' faith doesn't motivate them to serve. And so how do we know if we have a living faith or a dead faith this morning? James gives us a little clue here. James chapter 1, verse 26. He says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. He goes on to say in verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the widows and orphans in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So here are three indicators. They're not the only ones, but here are three indicators that the Bible gives us that we can kind of put a pulse on our faith this morning. And so I've broken these down into three categories. Speech, service, and spotlessness. So if you could say, well, if your speech, if your score is, well, I never have speech that's, that pleases God, that's a one. If it's a five, that means that you always have speech that pleases God. So what score would you give yourself on speech? Are you perfect in your speech? Do you always nail it? I mean, do you, are you, is that a strong point for you? Or do you really struggle with that and you almost never get it right? Some of us, if we're honest, are probably somewhere between a four and a two. I would probably put myself at about a three on that. So I'm a three on speech. Service. When James says to visit the fatherless and widows in their, in their time of trouble, that visit just doesn't mean to pop in and say hello, not a social call. To visit means to pay attention to, to take interest in, to meet the need. It's like the person who is destitute of daily food and clothing that we talked about just a minute ago. Do we help the vulnerable and needy, those who don't have any other way? Are we good to do that? 
And that's one way that we can be of service. What about just helping and being a good person? Helping our neighbors, meeting needs, being a, a good person. How do we do on our service? That's kind of tough because, you know, we're all so busy. And we've got a lot going on. And, you know, those other people have made some bad choices and they should kind of take care of their own stuff. Or they really put me out when they asked me to help them with this and that. It's not very convenient sometimes. And that's an attitude I have a lot about so-and-so. Man, I don't really want to help them. I would probably have to give myself a score of a three on service too. Not so hot. Spotlessness. To keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Talking about our separation from sin. What do I mean by that? Well, it's the influences of the world. The things that would drive us away from the doctrine of Christ and would involve us in activities of the flesh. The question I think that we need to ask ourselves here is, do we accept the sin in our life? Or do we accept the struggle against sin in our life? All of us have a struggle against sin. How's your struggle going? Are you giving up? Are you giving in? Have you resigned to the fact that this is always going to be a problem for you? Or do you recognize that this problem that you might have is against the will of Christ and He commands that you fight it every day of your life? That's the place we should be. How's your struggle? Not do you fail sometimes, but are you struggling against those influences? Do you reject worldliness and instead follow Jesus? You know, you can't have it both ways. The people who wanted to live in both worlds, Jesus cut them in two and said, you wanted a double life, I'll give it to you. You're hypocrites. We have to be servants of Christ and not servants of the world, servants of ourselves. Do you adopt an attitude of humility or are you proud? You know, it's easy for religious people to be full of self-righteous pride about our faith and look down on others who still need what we've got. Let's not be proud. Let's keep unspotted from that dangerous temptation of pride. What about sobriety? Our culture is in love with intoxication. Do you fight the forces of intoxication? Do you struggle to be of a sober mind so that you can have sound judgment, so you can make good choices and serve Christ? The Bible teaches us that intoxication is a sin that separates us from the body of Christ. What about sexual immorality? It's the same kind of sin. It separates us from the body of Christ. Do you allow your sexual immorality to flourish? Do you nurse it? Do you keep it on the side and just keep it quiet and hope no one finds out what you've been up to? Or do you strive to follow God's will in all your relationships? These are things that we've got to be on guard against. You know, if we've grown up following God's will, if we've grown up learning the Bible, we should probably have a good score when it comes to spotlessness. You know, I'm not going to say I'm perfect at this. Maybe I'd give myself a four. So I'm at three, three, four. So I add those up together. Last time I checked, that was let's see three plus four is seven plus. That's ten, right? Okay, I'm sure. There's a math teacher. That's why I was an English teacher because I can't do math. So what's your score? If you're like, if like I'm a solid fifteen, I'm like, yeah, right. You're not a solid fifteen. Nobody in this room is a fifteen. Maybe you're a twelve through a four. That's great. You're probably really spiritually alive. If you're a 9 through an 11, hang in there. We can make it. We just need to help each other. We need to wake up and firm up. If you're a 6 and a 10, maybe that's a sign that our works are incomplete and that we've got some work to do. And then 3 through 5, that may be an indicator that we're spiritually dead and we need some serious help. 
Now, I just made this up. I didn't, I didn't find this with the maps in the back of my Bible or anything, but it's one way we can take a look. Where are you this morning? And where do you think this church is? The command for us to fix this is in Revelation 3, verses 2 through 3. Be watchful. That literally means to wake up, to be conscious, aware, vigilant. He says, be watchful and strengthen. That literally means to firm up, to make things where they're soft, to make them hard and durable. Watchful and strengthen the things which remain. You know, they were, the church at Sardis wasn't all the way dead. They still had some hope that they could come back from the brink. And he said, some things do remain, and you need to firm, wake up, firm up, and strengthen what you've got. Remember what you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. You know, if we've got sin in our lives that we're not fighting against, and even the sin that we are fighting against, we need to repent of that. There's a passage where Jesus spoke to his opponents in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 through 8. Actually, I believe this is the baptism of John. So John says to these folks... Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism said to him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to free from the wrath to come? He called these people a nest of snakes because these Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to the baptism of repentance with John. And he said, Who warned you to flee? He said, Bear fruits worthy of repentance. You know, sometimes we think that repentance means just saying, You know, Lord, I know I'm, I sinned. And I'm sorry, and I want you to forgive me. And that's kind of repentance. But repentance, John said, is at bearing fruits that show our repentance, which means repentance is a change of our heart and mind that results in a change in our behavior and obedience. And he says, you're saying that you want to come to me and be baptized, but you need to actually do some things to show the world that you're repenting. I read a quote the other day online that said, asking someone for forgiveness with no intention of changing your behavior is manipulation. You think about that for just a second. Let's imagine that you were dishonest with your spouse and they discovered that you had lied and you were caught in your lie. And you said, you know what, honey, I'm sorry. I lied to you. I wasn't honest. And I'm sorry. I repent of that. I'm going to change. Will you please forgive me? That's how that conversation should go. Now, behind those words can be one of two kind of hearts. There's a heart that is sincerely sorry that they hurt their spouse and violated that trust, and they are going to do everything they can to make that right. And in the future, they're going to be honest and transparent, and they're not going to hurt their spouse like that again. That's what we would want to be behind the heart if we were receiving those words, right? Now, the other side of that could be a heart that's saying, man, I got caught this time, and I'm going to be in trouble, and this is going to make life rough for me. And I kind of like the way things are going, and I don't want to mess this good thing up, so I've got to kind of do something to get the heat off while I figure out how to readjust so I can continue to be the person I want to be. How do we approach God? After you sin... And you go to God and you tell him that you're sorry. And you say, Lord, I repent of that sin. Are you doing that to salve your violated conscience? 
and feel better so you can go on until you can do that thing again? Are you really going to God and you're sorry that you did that and you realize that your sin wounds God's heart and dishonors His Son and denies Him before men and you really want to change that part of your life? Because if you don't have that attitude when you go to God saying, I'm repenting, it's manipulation. And the truth is, is that you cannot manipulate God. He knows your works. And He knows whether you're alive or dead. There's no fooling Him. So in closing, an admonition for us comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. Therefore, He says, Awake, those of you who sleep, Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly. That means paying attention. You know, I have to walk circumspectly around this edge. Brother Richburg warned me not to fall off the edge because I'm not used to such a big stage now. And if I get close, I have to walk circumspectly because I might fall off the edge. The commandment to us is to not be asleep at the wheel but to be being watchful, vigilant, and careful so we don't fall off the edge. And the Bible says, not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time. That means making good use of the time you have right now because the days are evil. Meaning that things are rough and we don't know when the Lord will return. So whenever He comes back, we need to be found so doing. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The will of the Lord is for us is that we be not dead, but alive. This morning, if you are not struggling against sin, this morning, if you don't have a faith that motivates you to obedience, to praise God with your entire life, then you need to wake up. And you need to take those works that are weak and strengthen them, understanding what the will of the Lord is. And Christ will give you life. He will give you light. Be diligent. Because Jesus has promised that there will come a day where he will return and it'll be a surprise. And he will judge the world in righteousness. And be assured that he knows your works. This morning, if you need to come to Christ and obey the gospel and baptism, we are set up to help you and assist you with that today. This morning, if you understand that the letter that was written to the church at Sardis could have easily landed in your mailbox and you think that you might be spiritually dead, and you have something you need to repent of, and you need the prayers of this church body to help you get back on the right track and repent, we'll help you this morning. We'll pray for you. If you've got a need that the church can help with this morning, we have a song of invitation that's been selected, and I invite you to have a seat on the front row while we sing this song for you.